We're back. It's Chase and Josh with Factor Fantasy. That's Chase and I'm Josh, and we're here to give you part three of The Lord of the Rings and the Two Towers today, where we are going to be tackling chapter 12 through chapter 16. It's uh, interesting how they kind of broke it down. This is going to be getting into Frodo and Sam's perspective of the sequence of events from where they leave off with the fellowship here today. So it's like we're going to be going back in time just a little bit, but just going from Frodo and Sam's perspective. So it's going to be really interesting. Uh, they decided to split the book in half there. So it's going to be like the first half we covered last week is kind of from Aragorn, Legolas, Gimli, Merry, and Pippin's perspective. Now going forward through the remainder of this novel, it's going to be from Frodo and Sam's. So uh, excited to kind of get into that. Before we dive in, I'll go ahead and turn the floor over to Chase to say a few words, and then we'll get started. Yeah, man. I would say we got some interesting stuff here. Jay Nelly didn't quite think so, but my boy Smeagol's here finally. After all this time, we've been hearing clues about him, and uh, you know he kind of plays a major role now. So we're going to dive into that. Got a lot of good material for you today. Um, we are really kind of flying through this thing. Next week, we'll close out the book. Then we do the differences, and then it's on to the third installment in this arc, man. So a lot of good stuff. I'll let Jay Nelly kick us off here, man. Yeah, really great point. Like It does seem as if we have gone through this a lot faster than some of our other arcs, and sometimes, I guess, time flies when you're having fun. So uh, before we dive into what we're going to tackle today, we're going to go ahead and, like we always do, give a very quick recap just in case you're joining us for the very first time. If you are, welcome. We hope you enjoy what you hear. Uh, last week we left off, we kind of started, I guess I can say, with a really big part of this novel, maybe one of the climatic moments in the Battle of Helm's Deep. That was when Saruman sent all the forces from Isengard all the way over to uh, attack the men of Rohan. They made their last stand at Helm's Deep. They were able to wait out the night. If you guys remember, it started at midnight and then all went all the way through to dawn, which is kind of crazy. And at dawn, uh, Gandalf came back through with Urkenbran and uh, some trees on that side too, the Hurons, and they kind of pinned the orcs and the other enemies between like a hammer and an anvil, and they were able to make quick work of that, so they were able to survive. Then they, the king, Theoden, with Gandalf, Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli, and also Eomer and some of the other Rohirrim, very few members of them, decided to go take the trip to Isengard, we take it, they wanted to go find Saruman. When we get to Isengard, we see the Ents have kind of taken care of a lot of stuff there. They destroyed a lot of the battlements, took down a lot of the towers, and flooded the place so no one can escape. Uh, Saruman was kind of stuck in his Orthanc Tower, and we got to see a little bit about the power of Gandalf. He went one-on-one -on -one with Saruman, broke his staff, uh, took, he basically excommunicated him from the council, and gave Treebeard the orders that he cannot escape. He has to stay there in that tower. So from that point, Wormtongue dropped a nice crystal sphere looking ball from the top he tried to hit either Gandalf or Saruman no one really knows they mentioned it could be either and then Pippin went ahead and grabbed it ended up being a palantir which is like a seeing stone and that's how we figured out that when Pippin grabbed that from Gandalf in the night and tried to look into it that's exactly how Sauron and Saruman have been communicating but it, it trapped and ensnared Pippin almost was able to get all the information out of him and that would have been disastrous for everything that they've worked up to until this point. Luckily, Sauron got overconfident and just sent the Nazgul to Orthanc to try to take the Hobbit himself, thinking that's where they were. And then from that point, Gandalf grabbed Pippin, put him on the back of Shadowfax and said, 
let's go to Minastrith now. And that's kind of where we left off. And that's where we are going to pick up today, where we go back in time a little bit and from where the company separated. And we're going to take a look at what happened in terms of the sequence of events from Sam and Frodo's perspective. And that's where we'll start. But before we do that, let's get the glasses in the air, raise a toast. Cheers, Malice brother. Malice in the Malice chalice. In the chalice. All right, so just to dive in here, chapter 12, The Taming of Smeagol. Really, this chapter to me was just kind of following Frodo and Sam's journey after leaving the Fellowship behind, like I mentioned. So uh, we kind of get an idea that Frodo and Sam were having a hard time finding the proper way to go. They kind of kept finding the same sort of area and not really knowing if they were making any progress or not. I was getting really frustrated. They were wasting days, and Frodo was getting real anxious about that. And so... I think uh, one of the biggest moments that happened in this chapter is a Nazgul made a quick appearance and brought like a huge storm with it. And that kind of creeped them all out and chilled them to the bone. And that's when they knew that the Black Riders, they're back, but in a way that they were not in, in before, they're now on wings. From there, we obviously knew that Gollum was following them. And Frodo and Sam come up with this trap to kind of pin Gollum down and you know get some answers out of him at the very least or... I don't know if they were going to plan to kill him or not, but they really wanted them. They wanted to to make sure that he wasn't going to harm them at the very least. So uh, they get into a little tussle. They eventually capture Gollum, and Frodo tells Gollum that they'll let him free from being tied up with the rope if Smeagol swears to help Frodo and Sam find the right path to take to Mordor. So Smeagol agrees, and now it's the three of them traveling together towards the Black Gates of Mordor. He's going to be their guide, and really that is all the takeaways I had from that very first chapter in the Taming of Smeagol. What are some of the takeaways that you had? Gollum's the man, dude. <laughs> I mean, I won't read this dialogue here, but I just thought it was so funny. Uh, remember, they used the elven rope to bind him that, uh, you know, that, um, what's her name, Galadriel gave Sam because it couldn't be broken. Uh, not to bring up a whole lot of differences. We'll get into this in a couple of weeks, but... They didn't use the elven rope in the film, but in the film it was so funny because he was like, it burns us! It burns! <laughs> well, it was so... It was... I just think it's so funny, like, just bringing that up, the actor that played Smeagol in that movie played him really down to a T because now that we're reading these chapters, you can see it wasn't that he just kind of did that with his own character, like, trying to take that into his own hands. That's really, like, the way he kind of talks <laughs> in the book in a way. Uh, but yeah, so I thought it was really creative. Um, and one thing I do want to kind of bring up is towards the very end, Gollum tells the group in the morning they will make their way through the marshes to get to Mordor because the orcs don't know the path. And uh, one thing I really do want to bring up is that Sam, um, you can see reading these chapters, he really, even though Gollum kind of swears... Smeagol, you can say, now kind of turns from Gollum to Smeagol, starts to swear his allegiance to them after they set him like free from bondage, I would say. Not exactly free, but Sam still kind of doubts his allegiance in a way. So that's uh, all I'll say, man, and I'll let you take us away to chapter two. That's a really good point. Uh, the fact that Sam never fully trusts Smeagol is going to play a big role going forward. So great, great catch on that. And, and you know, we start seeing it as really as you know, the very first chapter talking about things from Frodo and Sam's perspective. So pretty cool how early on things kind of are going to come full circle later. So 
uh, to kind of get into the second chapter. The second chapter is the passage of the marshes. So the takeaways I had from like the passage of the marshes is when Smeagol is now their guide, and they're making much better progress because of him. So Smeagol kind of passed his first real test when both Sam and Frodo fell asleep without one of them staying awake to keep watch. And instead of Smeagol attacking them or trying to kill them in their sleep, he didn't do anything to them. And I think that was a nice strategic move on his part to go ahead and just you know, take the first night and, and maybe lull the hobbits into a sense of security that I am on your side. I'm not going to try to kill you. I, I swore on the precious, and that means a lot to me. Now, who knows if that's going to hold up, but it definitely was the smart play by Smeagol for night one to not take advantage, as he could have, with both Frodo and Sam falling asleep, because Sam initially wanted to keep watch, but he just he just couldn't. His body was just exhausted and gave out on him. So, uh, anyways, they end up waking up, no issue during the first night. Now, I would say this, without Smeagol, they would have been fucked, because Smeagol was using his sense of smell and touch and sight to making sure they were following the right path. And these marshes, they were going to like suck you in and drag you down. And that's exactly why orcs, as Chase was mentioning, they don't know the passage and they don't even want to mess around with it because they'll, they'll never come out. And so I just thought, you know, without Smeagol, they are going to be in you know, a world of shit getting through this. But uh, in the marshes, there are these dead people. So there are dead elves, dead men, and dead orcs. And there's these pale, ghostly faces that are illuminated by eerie, dimly shining smoke that kind of look like ghastly lights. So I'm going to go ahead and read the fourth paragraph on page 262 because I thought it has something like, really important here. But it says that uh, Sam looked darkly at him and shuddered again, thinking that he guessed why Smeagol had tried to touch them. Well, I don't want to see them, he said. Never again. Can't we get on and get away? Yes, yes, said Gollum, but slowly, very slowly, very carefully, or hobbits will go down to join the dead ones and light little candles. Follow Smeagol, don't look at the lights. So that was kind of cool and important in stating that <laughs> they were going to join the dead people. If they, if they didn't have Smeagol there. It just kind of like led evidence to the fact that I think they would have been in a world of shit if Smeagol wasn't there to help them through this part. <laughs> <laughs> and then from there, we get the Nazgul passing over them. Uh, Smeagol even calls them wraiths on wings. So... Now we know for a fact these ringwraiths are airborne. I mean, they have been for a while, but they, they started as black riders on black horses. Then when they went to Rivendell, they kind of got swept away. At least the horses seemed like they didn't make it. And we didn't really kind of get anything from the Nazgul for a while until uh, we saw it for the very first time in the book where it flew over and, and Legolas tried to shoot an arrow and was able to hit it, and hit it in the throat. This was back before the company all departed from each other, and they, they, when they split up, this is still when they were all there. And they, so that was the first time we got to see something that could have been that. But they kept saying that they felt the same sort of feeling of foreboding and fear from the Black Riders that they're getting from these, these wraiths in the sky, wraiths on wings. So it kind of leads us to believe that they're the same exact creature and that they're just on different steeds now. Now... Uh, I'm going to read the last two paragraphs on page 263 through the first break in 264. Because it says, For a moment, the sight of it gladdened the hearts of the hobbits, but Gollum cowered down, muttering curses on the white face. Then Frodo and Sam, staring at the sky, breathing deeply of the fresh air, saw it come. A small cloud flying from the accursed hills, a black shadow loosed from Mordor. A vast shape winged and ominous. It scudded across the moon, with a deadly cry went away westward, outrunning the wind in its fell speed. 
They fell forward, groveling heedlessly on the cold earth. But the shadow of horror wheeled and returned, passing lower now, right above them, sweeping the Fenrik with its ghastly wings, and then it was gone, flying back to Mordor with the speed of the wrath of Sauron. And behind it, the wind roared away, leaving the dead marshes rare and bleak. The naked waste, as far as the eye could pierce, even to the distant menace of the mountains, was dappled with the fitful moonlight. Frodo and Sam got up, rubbing their eyes like children wakened from an evil dream to find the familiar night still all over the world. But Gollum lay on the ground as if he had been stunned. They roused him with difficulty, and for some time he would not lift his face, but knelt forward on his elbows, covering the back of his head with his large, flat hands. Wraiths, he wailed. Wraiths on wings. The precious is their master. They see everything. Everything. Nothing can hide from them. Curse the white face. And they tell him everything. He sees. He knows. Ah, Gollum! 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 It was not until the moon had sunk, westering far above, far away beyond the Tolbrandir, that he would get up to make a move. So that's just a little bit about how the ring race affect Gollum, or Smeagol, however you want to call him. thought that was pretty important to notate. Uh, from there, you know, they're able to pass some marshes, and in front of them now is a bare, desolate wasteland where nothing grows, and it's all ruined from the enemy's destruction. And so, I think the sound of the Nazgul really frightened Smeagol, because now Smeagol was arguing with his Gollum side, and he wants to take the ring because the wraiths are now searching. So we actually overhear Smeagol make a plan to let, quote-unquote, her help. And that's here in the middle of page 268. It's a little bit of a foreshadow here. And I'll, I'll go ahead and, and tackle it. It says, No, sweet one, see my precious. If we has it, then we can escape, even from him, eh? Perhaps we grows very strong, stronger than the wraiths. Lord Smeagol? Gollum the Great? The Gollum. Eat fish every day, three times a day, fresh from the sea. Most precious Gollum. Must have it. We wants it. We wants it. We wants it. But there's two of them. They'll wake too quick and kill us, whined Smeagol in their last effort. Not now, not yet. We wants it, but... And here there was a long pause, as if a new thought had awakened. Not yet, eh? Perhaps not. She might help. She might. Yes. No, no, not that way, wailed Smeagol. Yes, we wants it, we wants it. And each time that the second thought spoke, Gollum's long hand crept slowly pawing towards Frodo, then was drawn back with a jerk as Smeagol spoke again. Finally, both arms, with long fingers flexed and twitching, clawed toward his neck. And the whole part about this, too, is really cool, is that Sam had lain still fascinated by this debate, but watched every move that Gollum made from under his half-closed eyes. So basically, Sam didn't even... like it, it's, it's crazy, because if you were Sam in this situation, maybe you would have confronted him right then and there. But Sam made the decision that he was going to let this ride out. Number one, because he's been a good guide so far, and you know what, if they kill Gollum right now, who knows if they get to where they need to be. And we're going to find how that does play a role here in just a little bit with this next chapter, and having to find maybe a different way to go than anticipated. But I just thought it was a really, really nice strategic play by Sam to just sit back, keep the warning in his heart of, oh, I knew something was amiss here, because he saw the two sides of Gollum arguing with each other about... Uh, what they were going to do and, and how they could possibly betray the hobbits. So I thought that was cool. And I really think that the, the catalyst of this is was when the, the Nazgul really kind of shook Smeagol out of it and realized that these rig mates are coming for the ring and that Frodo has it. And as long as Frodo has it, they're not going to stop and he's going to be in danger too. So uh, anyways, just going to say that na the Nazgul makes a third appearance. So I'm going to read from the last sentence on page 269 through page 270. It says, About an hour after midnight, the fear fell on them a third time. 
but it now seemed more remote, as if it were passing far above the clouds, rushing with terrible speed into the west. Gollum, however, was helpless with terror and was convinced that they were being hunted and that their approach was known. Three times, he whimpered, three times is a threat. They feel us here. They feel the precious. The precious is their master. We cannot go any further this way. No, it's no use. No use. Pleading and kind words were no longer any avail. It was not until Frodo commanded him angrily and laid a hand on his sword hilt that Gollum would get up again. Then at last he rose with a snarl and went before them like a beaten dog. So they stumbled on through the weary end of the night. And until the coming of another day of fear, they walked on in silence with bowed heads, seeing nothing and hearing nothing but the wind hissing in their ears. So that was the end of that chapter. And those are some of the bigger things that I took away from it. What are some things that you took away? Yeah, no, I think you nailed it. Um, I think a big point that you made is just to show that if they didn't have Smeagol <laughs> that's fighting with Gollum right now, they'd be screwed. <laughs> like, I mean, there's no way they're getting through that marsh and figuring out what's going on without Smeagol there. There's no way. And uh, you want to, you know, one thing you brought up that's very interesting about how he considered using the ring. It's funny because you think back to almost like how Bilbo Baggins even used the ring in the very beginning of the Fellowship to escape the party. So it almost makes you think like the more times these people that are ring bearers have the ring they think of that option to escape even like how frodo did against boromir but one part i thought that was really funny <laughs> it's not really important to the story uh, but i'm still gonna bring it up because i think it's really funny and it's kind of one of my favorite parts of this chapter so on my book uh this is actually on page so in my book this is on page 229 but it's probably different than some other people's but he gets offered lemus bread by frodo and he's starving and he still refuses to take it it says we must take a little food said frodo are you hungry smeagol we have very little to share but we will spare you what we can at the word hungry a greenish light was kindled in Gollum's pale eyes and they seemed to protrude further and ever from his thin sickly face for a moment he relapsed into his old Gollum manner. We are famished. Yes, famished we are, precious, he said. What is it they eat? Have you they nice fishes? His tongue lolled out between his sharp yellow teeth, licking his colorless lips. No, we have got no fish, said Frodo. We have only got this. He held up the wafer of lemmis and water. If the water here is fit to drink... Yes, yes, nice water, said Gollum. Drink it drink it while we can but what is it they've got precious is it crunchable is it tasty frodo broke off a portion of wafer and handed it to him on his leaf wrapping Gollum sniffed it and at the leaf his face changed a spasm of disgust came over him and a hint of his old malice smeagol smells it he said leaves out of elf country gah this stinks he climbed to those trees and he couldn't wash the smell off his hands. My nice hands! Dropping the leaf, he took a corner of Lemus and nibbled it. He spat and fit a coughing shook him. Ah, no! He sputtered. You try to choke poor Smeagol. Dust and ashes. He can't eat that. He must starve. But Smeagol doesn't mind. Nice hobbits. Smeagol has promised he will starve. He can't eat hobbits' food. 
he will starve. Poor Dan Smeagol. <laughs> I was just laughing my ass off. <laughs> couldn't stop laughing man like wow like what a dick (laughs) Uh, anyways but yeah those were my takeaways man and how selfish is that i wonder if the uh food is somewhat poisonous to him because elvish uh stuff seems to be kind of pure it kind of hurts orcs too so i wonder if it's just because smeagol's so like darkened by this spirit and this like type of schizophrenia that he has that if it actually is physically painful so i don't know if he's just kind of being like ungrateful or if it actually you know doesn't like really doesn't have a good effect on him or what so i'm not really sure but yeah uh <laughs> that's let's jump into the the next one here the black gate is closed there's some cool things that happen in this chapter i, I did i did like this one a little bit uh so frodo sam and smeagol they make it to the black gate and they find that the black gate was guarded more heavily than they imagined. There were sentinels placed on the battlements, uh, on the caves of the sides of the hills, they were filled with orcs, and then along the path to the gate, which is actually called Sirith Gorger, which is the Haunted Pass, they had other armies that were aligned with Mordor coming into it as well, too. So it was basically an impossible task to enter Mordor through the Black Gates. There's just too many watchful eyes. like It was too heavily guarded. So Smeagol goes into this frenzy and tries to stop Frodo from going to the Black Gate. And so I'm going to go ahead and read here on page, for me it's 273. Uh, It says, Master said so. Master says, bring us to the gate. So good Smeagol does so. Master said so, wise master. And I did, said Frodo. His face was grim and set but resolute. He was filthy, haggard, and pinched with wariness, but he cowered no longer. His eyes were clear. I said so because I purpose to enter Mordor, and I know no other way. Therefore I shall go this way. I do not ask anyone to go with me. No, no, Master Well Gollum, pawing at him and screaming in great distress. No use that way, no use. Don't take the precious to him. He'll eat us all if he gets it. Eat all the world. Keep it nice, Master. And be kind to Smeagol. Don't let him have it. Or go away. Go to nice places and give it back to little Smeagol. Yes, yes, Master, give it back, eh? Smeagol will keep it safe. He will do lots of good, especially to nice hobbits. Hobbits go home. Don't go to the gate. I am commanded to go to the land of Mordor, and therefore I shall go, said Frodo. If there is only one way, then I must take it. What comes after must come. So this is the part here. There was actually a few things in that little section that I read that was interesting. The Smeagol still hasn't given up the thought of him getting the ring back, and Frodo is about to address that in just a little bit. <laughs> I've, got, I've got that written down as an important part. But also, this is supposed to be the only way to get through Mordor, and we're going to find out if maybe there is a secondary way here. So, uh, At that point, Gollum does go ahead and say that there was another way. Uh, he hasn't spoken for it before because he Frodo didn't ask him to. He said, hey, take me to the Black Gate. So Smeagol's like, all right, I'm going to take you very literally at your word, and like this is where we're going to go. He told me you were going to set me free if I take you to the Black Gate. But at this point... Like the, the danger that the precious is in to Smeagol is more important than Smeagol's freedom. Because I, I don't know if, if he realized what Frodo was going to do, just walk right through to it. Because Frodo did say, like, hey, if you bring me to the Black Gate, you're free to go. Like, you know, we're not going to keep you captive. And so I think that's why Smeagol's like, cool, well, I'm going to lead you there, and then I'm going to get my ass out of here. And then when he got there, realized that Frodo was literally going to walk through the front doors of the gate with the ring, he's like, no, wait a second, hold on. Like, my, my freedom isn't worth, like, what you're about to do. Like, there is another way, and I'll tell you about it. And so, uh, Gollum does go ahead and tell Frodo about the, the other way, and 
Sam and Frodo are both a little skeptical. They're like, well, hey, like, why haven't you mentioned this before? Like, is it guarded? Do you know if it's guarded? And he was kind of not giving a lot of information. Like, they had to, like, dig it out of him. And finally, he's like, yes, like, parts of it are guarded, but there's, like, a small path that will lead up and away. And, you know, through there, like, uh, I would go ahead and, and kind of talk about it. But it's just, it's really interesting how he is, it's almost like he's reverting back to his not evil ways, I would say, talking about Smeagol, but so much like uh, after he had that conversation with the other side of himself, he's not as open with the hobbits as he was before, not giving away everything and telling them all the, all the, all the things, I guess I, I would make the most sense for me to say. But instead of being like, yeah, it's guarded, but we can do X, Y, Z, it's like he kept trying to hide that information until they pressed him. They had to press him to get it out of him. So I thought that was pretty interesting. But then the next part that I want to read here in this chapter and it's just Frodo considers Smeagol once more, but gives Smeagol a stern warning. So uh, he does take at least into consideration, maybe we'll try this extra path. But before he does, I thought this was really, really important. It says, Smeagol, he said, I will trust you once more. Indeed, it seems that I must do so, and that it is my fate to receive help from you, where I at least look for it, and your fate to help me, whom you long pursued with evil purpose. So far you have deserved well of me, and have kept your promise truly. Truly I say and I mean, he added with a glance at Sam, for twice now we have been in your power and you have done no harm to us, nor have you tried to take from me what you once sought. May the third time prove the best, but I warn you, Smeagol, you are in danger. Yes, yes, master, said Gollum, dreadful danger. Smeagol bones shake to think of it, but he doesn't run away. He must help, nice master. I did not mean the danger that we all share, said Frodo. I mean a danger to yourself alone. You swore a promise by what you call the precious. Remember that. It will hold you to it, but it will seek a way to twist it to your own undoing. Already you are being twisted. You reveal yourself to me just now, foolishly. Give it back to Smeagol, you said. Do not say that again. Do not let that thought grow in you. You will never get it back, but the desire of it may betray you to a bitter end. You will never get it back. In the last need, Smeagol, I should put on the precious, and the precious mastered you long ago. If I, wearing it, were to command you, you would obey, even if it, were, if it were to leap from a precipice or to cast yourself into the fire, and such would be my command. So have a care, Smeagol. And that was kind of crazy, because Frodo has never really kind of given a, a commanding like aura around him or said anything that uh, was almost like threatening in a way. He's been a very like, chill, cool, nice hobbit, kind of go with the flow, gets a little worried now and again, and you know is a little anxious and worried a lot, but... He's never really kind of given that that sense of power inside of him, and that was one of the first times. And even Sam noticed it. He's like, you know, like the basically this kind. Don't mistake this kindness for weakness, because if it comes down to it, like I will do what I need to do, Smeagol, and that that's pretty much it there. So uh, Smeagol tells him about the secret pass. Sam and Frodo are not convinced it's unguarded, so they kind of take time to think over those options. Then they see the four black riders on wings, as they say, in the far distance, circling in the sky. It's still kind of causing them to fear a little bit, but not so because not like to the point where it's paralyzing because they're not as close. And then from there, they also see that a new army is approaching Mordor. And the new army that's approaching Mordor, I'm going to read it. It's from the third paragraph on page 283. thought this is pretty cool here. It says, More men going into Mordor, he said in a low voice. Dark faces. We have not seen men like these before. No, Smeagol has not. They are fierce. They have black eyes and long black hair and gold rings in their ears. Yes, lots of beautiful gold. 
and some have red paint on their cheeks and red cloaks, and their flags are red and the tips of their spears, and they have round shields, yellow and black with big spikes. Not nice, very cruel, wicked men they look, almost as bad as orcs, and so much bigger. Smeagol thinks they have come out of the south beyond the great river's end. They came up that road. They have passed on to the black gate, but more may follow. Always more people coming into Mordor. One day, all the peoples will be inside. And then Sam from there, he kind of asks if the new armies approaching Mordor, if they had any Oliphants. And these ones didn't. This army didn't. But it's kind of a foreshadow because before we close out today, it's very possible that Sam will, will get his wish to see one of these uh, Oliphants. And this, they also have another name, too, and, and we'll, we'll come across that in just a little bit. So, the very end of this chapter, Frodo makes the decision to follow Smeagol to the secret pass, and that's kind of how the Black Gate, close, Black, Black Gate is closed, closes out. And so I'll turn it over to Chase to give his takeaways on the chapter. No, I think you killed it, man. That was <clears throat> awesome. Um, one thing to point out is how they kind of spell Oliphants. Like, I kept correcting it in my notes to Elephants, is that that's what i kind of want to know which we get a little bit more into that uh more in the next in the next couple chapters well really in the next chapter is it like in the film they portray it as like elephants is that exactly what it is or is it more of like uh like a mythical creature kind of thing no i think it's just the way they say elephant uh, like like yeah, Oliphants, like it sounds just like elephant. And then when the, he describes what they're supposed to look like, in me, in my mind, that's like exactly the picture. And when he when he says the the little song that he does, I'll, I'll actually, you know what? Just for that part here, I'll, I'll read that little <laughs> song just to answer the question. It says, it. "Gray as a mouse, big as a house, nose like a snake. I make the earth shake as I tramp through the grass. The trees crack as I pass. With horns in my mouth, I walk in the south, flapping big ears beyond count of years." I stump around and round, never lie on the ground, not even to die. Oliphant am I, biggest of all, huge and old and tall. If ever you'd met me, you wouldn't forget me. If you never do, you won't think I'm true. But old Oliphant I am, and I never lie. So I think that that pretty much describes an elephant to a T, right? Large animal, gray, has a nose like a snake, horns on the side of its mouth, big flapping ears, uh, they, they always say elephants never lie in our real life now too it's just something that's always been like a superstition or whatever people you know correlate with elephants so yeah in my mind I think it's just their way of saying elephant so that's my thought yeah no it works for me man good stuff no I think you uh, you nailed that chapter that was everything I had um, just uh, another thing I added in here this was on page 245 of my book it could be a little bit different in yours but just reiterating what i said earlier is um this is when uh when smeagol winds up taking them to the gate and tells frodo uh uh to give the ring back to him and he's you know he was kind of just i guess almost going back into that golem self of his uh but when he was saying telling frodo there was another way Sam doubts again that there's kind of like another way and senses that betrayal, which definitely is a big foreshadowing for what we'll get into next week <laughs> down the road. So, uh, yeah, and I'll let you go ahead and take away getting food for Smeagol again. 
All right, let's go ahead and tackle it. It's called Of Herbs and Stewed Rabbit. Uh, a couple takeaways I had in this is they passed through Ithilien, which is an old countryside of Gondor that was once beautiful and maintained, but now it's the territory of the enemy. So it's, But it's only been held for a couple years, meaning it still hasn't gone into full ruin, so there's still some beautiful aspects of it left. And part of that being like a nice forest uh, with other yeah, thing, living creatures in it, and part of that being... Uh, some potential food and, and Sam even asks Smeagol to go find some rabbits if he can and Smeagol does bring back the rabbits for Sam and Sam cooks up the rabbits for the first hot meal they've had since Lorien. Smeagol had thrown such a fit about it because he doesn't like rabbits cooked he wanted to eat them raw off the bone like a like an animal in the wild and and Sam's like nope these are for me and Frodo or Frodo and I and I am <laughs> gonna cook these up my way and yeah it was their first real hot meal uh, since Lorien, and the issue with this is Sam made a fire to cook it up, and he told Smeagol that you don't have to worry about it, it's not going to make any smoke. And for the first part of it, after he cooked it, he was right, but then he was careless. And this is going to be a running theme with Sam here that we're going to talk about. Sometimes he can get careless, and it's going to screw him over. And so he gets careless and lets the fire go on, and then the smoke came up through the, through the woods there. And when the smoke came up, they heard uh, whistling, or Sam heard someone whistling, and then an answer call of a whistle. So he realized it too late that he sent up the smoke in the air, and then they are basically, Sam gets back to the campground, quote-unquote, so to speak, and him and Frodo hide in this thicket, and they're cornered by the men of Gondor. Uh, they, they start pressing in, and they all, hang, it's like four men, and just Frodo and Sam, and Frodo and Sam pull their little swords out, and, and the people of Gondor kind of looking at them like, what the heck? What is this? Like, We've never seen these people before. It's like a shock on both sides, because I think the men of Gondor are you know, imagining other men or orcs or you know enemies you know that work for Sauron, but he finds like two people that look like children to their eyes. So uh, their captain's name is Faramir, and that, that name is going to be a little bit of a foreshadow, too. Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and read the second and third paragraph on page 299 in this book here just because I think this is really cool more than anything. So in page 299, the second and third paragraph, it says, The hobbits sat down again. This is after, I wouldn't say they take them captive, but they definitely don't let Frodo and Sam leave, but they don't bind them or anything. So uh, the hobbits sat down again, but they said nothing to one another of their thoughts and doubts. Close by, just under the dappling shadow of the dark bay trees, two men remained on guard. They took off their masks now and again to cool them as the day heat grew, and Frodo saw that they were goodly men, pale skinned, dark of hair, with gray eyes and faces sad and proud. They spoke together in soft voices, at first using the common speech, but after the manner of old days, and then changing to another language of their own. To his amazement, he listened, Frodo became aware that it was the elven tongue that they spoke, or one, but a little different. And he looked at them with wonder, for he knew then that they must be Dunedain of the South, men of the line of the lords of Westerness. After a while, he spoke to them, but they were slow and cautious in answering. They named themselves Mablung and Damrod, soldiers of Gondor, and they were rangers of Ithilien, for they were descended from folk who lived in Ithilien at one time before it was overrun. And from such men the Lord Denethor chose his forayers, who crossed the Anduin secretly, how or where they would not say, to harry the orcs and other enemies that roam between Ephelduath and the river. So I thought that was cool that we've now got rangers of the south. You know, like Aragorn is like a ranger of the north. We've got rangers of the south now that also come from like the Dunedain. On, on, and that, I thought that was really cool to notate, something that does not get mentioned in the films at all. Uh, so definitely 
Well, point for the novel here, that was really cool to bring up other rangers from a different location, but still the same line of the Dunedain. I thought that was awesome. So, next thing I have from a takeaway is that the men of Gondor are on an errand to ambush the men of Harad, who have taken sides with Sauron. And they're on their way to bolster the armies of Mordor, taking the roads of the men of Gondor built before Ithilien was taken over. And so the ambush begins, and Faramir and all the men of Gondor attack the, the men of Harad. And this is kind of, we get the really cool full circle moment. The ambush begins, and Sam kind of looks out and takes a gander at what's going on in the battle. And Sam sees what's called a Mumak of Harad, a.k.a. an Oliphant from the stories that he was singing in real life. So we get the full circle moment. Sam gets to see his Oliphant. Uh, it was actually a pretty terrifying sight from what I read on there. It says like the tower on its back was half broken and like there was blood stains from its horns and it was running, trampling over people and they were flinging arrows at it but they were bouncing off its tough skin and they don't even know what happened to the Oliphant after the ambushes. They could have like ran into the wild or off into the river. So I thought that was pretty cool that we got to see that. And that was honestly the really last big takeaway that I had uh, of that. So to kind of read it to really build up, it says, Where, where, cried Damrod to his commander, made the valor turn aside, Mumok, Mumok, and to his astonishment and terror and lasting delight, Sam saw a vast shape crash out of the trees and come careering down the slope. Big as a house, much bigger than a house, it looked to him a gray-clad moving hill. Fear and wonder, maybe, enlarged him in the hobbit's eyes, but the Mumok of Harad was indeed a beast of vast bulk, and the like of him does not walk now in Middle-earth. His kin that live still in latter days are but memories of his girth and majesty. On he came, straight towards the watchers, then he swerved aside in the nick of time, passing only a few yards away, rocking the ground beneath their feet, his great legs like trees, enormous sail-like ears spread out, long snout upraised like a huge serpent about to strike, his small red eyes raging, his upturned horn-like tusks were bound with bands of gold and dripped with blood, his trappings of scarlet and gold flapped about him in wild tatters, the ruins of what had seemed a very war tower lay upon his heaving back, smashed in his furious passage through the woods, and high upon his neck still desperately clung a tiny figure, the body of a mighty warrior, a giant among the swirtings. And on the, bee, on the great beast thundered, blundered in blind wrath through pool and thicket, arrows skipped and snapped harmlessly about the triple hide of his flanks. Men of both sides fled before him, but many he overtook and crushed to the ground. Soon he was lost to view, still trumpeting and stamping far away. What became of him Sam never heard, whether he escaped to roam the wild for a time, until he perished far from his home, or was trapped in some deep pit, or whether he raged on until he plunged into the great river and was swallowed up. And Sam drew a deep, deep breath. An Oliphant it was, he said. So there are Oliphants, and I have seen one. What a life, but no one at home will ever believe me. Well, if that's over, I'll have a bit of sleep. Sleep while you may, said Moblung, but the captain will return if he is unhurt. And when he comes, we shall depart swiftly. We shall be pursued as soon as news of our deeds reaches the enemy, and that will not be long. Go quietly when you must, said Sam. No need to disturb my sleep. I was walking all night. Mablung laughed. I do not think the captain will leave you here, Master Samwise, but you shall see. So not only do I want to read that to detail like the Oliphant and the cool aspect of Sam seeing him for the first time and how great of a view that was, and really that's part of the great parts of the description that J.R.R. Tolkien does. They have to really put you in visually see what this thing looks like in front of you. But right after that, at this point, Mablung doesn't think they're going to let Frodo and Sam go. At first it was like not sure, but now it seems as if 
Faramir is not going to let them go, and that's going to be kind of an issue that gets brought to a point of contention in this next chapter. And those are just my takeaways of that chapter there of Herbs and Stewed Rabbit. What are the takeaways that you had? Yeah, I know you, you nailed it, man. Uh, just two kind of big, well, one's not very important, <clears throat> but one big takeaway for me, this is on uh, the third paragraph of 259 for me, but Sam finds, you mentioned it a good bit there, but where he finds that ring uh, where there's like bones burned. Uh, did you mention that? I actually didn't mention that, no. Okay, gotcha. I figured you always mention everything, but I doubted myself there. This I thought was pretty cool. So uh, on my book, it's the third paragraph of 259, but it says, Sam scrambling below the outfall of the lake, smelling and touching the unfamiliar plants and trees, forgetful for the moment of Mordor, was reminded suddenly of their ever-present peril. He stumbled upon a ring, still scorched by fire, and in the midst of it, he found a pile of charred and broken bones and skulls. The swift growth of the wild, with briar and elegante and trailing clematis, was already drawing a veil over the place of dreadful feast and slaughter. But it was not ancient. He hurried back to his companions, but he said nothing. The bones were best left in place and not pawed and routed by Gollum. Let's find a place to lie up in, he said, not lower down, higher up for me. So my question is, do you think that was ever like someone that had one of the rings of power? No, uh, I think that was just like... He says he found the ring. It's like a, like a ring of people. Like it's like a small. Like, oh, okay. Like I wasn't sure if that was like a ring on the ground. No, that was, was like, like a ring of power or something. No, so. it's like basically. Uh, I'm assuming it was either a campfire site where they burned people to the bone, and that was just like the like, like the circle cropping in the in the setting there. It's not actually like a ring. A physical ring it's just like okay gotcha yeah. you never know these books man <laughs> all kinds of rings yeah but yeah no so that's why i was wondering there i wasn't sure if that was like almost like the um over in the mines uh what was his name the uh gimli's ancestor that died i wasn't sure if it was like someone important <laughs> that died in the woods there or something yeah um, no i don't think so i think it was just uh the bones of of people and, and Sam didn't want to disturb their peace because he thought like Gollum might go ahead and gnaw on the bones of remaining of it. He's like, oh, I'm just not going to tell anyone about this and just let them rest in peace. So, no, it's, it's just like the, the charred remains of the outcropping there of, of where I'm assuming they probably burnt bodies. Uh, yeah, that was just people who died. Not, nothing like, <laughs> like I, you, you think if there was a ring no there, the, I mean, if there was an actual physical ring there, I don't believe anyone would just let it sit there they would have been it would have been taken by the enemy or <laughs> anyone else that came across it but um yeah i'm yeah it was not it was not a physical ring it was just a you know they were they were describing what the little scene looked like in, in, in like a circle <laughs> outcropping of, of what was around from the burned charred remains of like the field that it was all done in so yeah that's what gotcha. that was <laughs> okay no worries speaking of uh chomping on food let's skip over to our boy Smeagol so Sam like you mentioned he cooked some potatoes no he <laughs> so did not he cook says, any potatoes I couldn't find any potatoes oh he was trying he wanted to make potatoes that's yes. <laughs> what he wanted to do but uh yeah he cooked the the rabbits 
But um, he goes, potatoes, potatoes, said Sam. The gaffer's delight, rear good ballast for an empty belly. But you won't find any, so you needn't look. But be good, Smeagol, and fetch me the herbs, and I'll think better of you. What's more, if you turn over a new leaf, keep it turned, and I'll cook you some taters one of these days. I will. Fried fish and chips, served by S. Gamgee? You couldn't say no to that. Yes, yes, we could. Spoiling nice fish, scorching it. Give me fish now. Keep nasty chips. Oh, you're hopeless, said Sam. Go to sleep. He's such an ass, man. (laughs) Quick question. Is he... Like, I know he's, like, schizophrenic in a way because he kind of, like, fights with himself after the ring is, you know, he was tortured and the ring took such a toll on his body over the years. Is he, like, all there mentally? Uh, That's a tough question to answer because... I think his mind started to go the minute he laid eyes on the ring where he killed his best friend Deagle, and then he had the ring for so long, and it made him like a shell of who he is, and it stretched his life very thin, and that's why he's like this gangly creature, and so he's somewhere in between an animal and a human, I think, in my in my head. That's what I am. He has like these like primitive instincts, but also can reason and have good thought for himself and he's really good at escaping things too so um when you say all there I, I just he definitely has at least a little bit of schizophrenia where he has two different personalities that he literally combats with literally fights himself on so um yeah i don't i don't i it's a hard thing to say because he, he definitely is aware he's aware enough to where he can make decisions and he obviously knows the paths to Mordor just fine and so he's not full-blown crazy out of his mind with no thoughts but at the same time he he does have animalistic type of you know like instinct I guess I can say so uh I, if you think if you're asking me if I think he th- thinks and reasons the way a normal human does no not at this point the ring definitely kind of took that from him but I don't fully think he's all the way gone either uh when it comes to a mental standpoint so i don't know what do you think is he what i want to know is do you think he's like a child like is he more in like a child mentality no i think he's more in the, uh, <laughs> uh, what do you call um like a beast mentality like he knows one thing you know whereas next week like, he wants to do like Food that he wants to get food. They, like you seem to see it. Like, he doesn't cook. He doesn't do anything. He just grabs it and eats it like an animal. And it's, it's like his mind is do this. This is done. Do this. This is done. So I don't think it's like a child. I just think it's very primitive. That's what I think. I think it's you know, there's not a lot of thought that goes into it. But then on the flip side of that too, he does kind of come up with a plan about you know we're, we don't want to get too far ahead of it now, but comes up with a plan to kind of lure the hobbit somewhere, and that does take some level of thinking and. Yeah, I don't think a child would be able to do that either. <laughs> so, like I said, uh, he just he battle he has a battle within between I think like beast instincts, primal instincts, and being a uh, human that probably should have died a long time ago <laughs> because his life has been so stretched <laughs> out just due to the ring. And so he's, he's got like a little bit of a lot of stuff going on up there, man. I don't I don't envy him. <laughs> yeah, I don't envy him. Um... 
He's really funny, though. <laughs> I mean, for someone that... My only issue is... And I agree with you 100%. My only issue is for someone that's such a beast mentality, yet he gets pissed over lemon bread, over raw fish. <laughs> like, I mean, usually, you know, an animal, you know... they probably I, I grew up with dogs in my family, and I love dogs. The dog I grew up with would not have turned down like a biscuit over dog food. Like that's my kind of like thing. I don't know. But you think about wild animals there, you don't see like lions eating, you know, cooked mood. Like like you know, they just they attack yeah. the gazelle and eat it. Like dogs are domesticated. Smeagol is not a domesticated creature. Um so yeah, I think the thought of warm, <laughs> the thought of warm food is is probably foreign to him. He hasn't had it probably since he had the ring, and hasn't really needed to have like a level of warm food. So, like I said, I think he's just full on a wild animal that also argues with a human component of himself, and together they make the difference of Smeagol and Gollum, and like pulling them each towards one way. So that's what I think, man. I, I don't. I think that the Lembus bread might have hurt him. Uh, physically, as I said, it tastes like ash. He took a corner off it, and it tastes like ashes in his mouth. Just because that was made from elves who like are, are quote unquote like like a level of purity in a way. Yeah. And Smeagol obviously his soul is a little bit darkened just because like the murder and like the trouble he's caused. Um, so that could have potentially physically harmed him. And then in, I just don't think he has a taste for the way humans cook food because it takes away from the actual flesh itself i guess and he's been so accustomed to eating it like a wild animal all these years that that's just what he prefers now so that that, that's my thought on it yeah last question and then i was thinking about saving this one but since we're talking about it might as well throw it in there and then we'll just get on to the last chapter of the day um do you think there's any purity left in him without bringing anything up because we know kind of he's not exactly the most trustworthy person, which we'll get into later in a couple weeks here. But do you think there's any genuine good character in him? I would say no to purity. I think that's kind of been spoiled. But do I think he has times where he does things genuinely for the good of someone else other than himself? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, but then again, the backhanded side of that is because he eventually wants the ring back for himself. So he is doing helpful things that he doesn't need to do, putting himself in situations where he could be in trouble instead of saving himself. It might seem like he's doing something for someone else, but there's always that back thought of, well, he's only doing this so that way they can be safe so he can end up screwing them over later on. Um, so really like I don't know if I I don't know if I could really pinpoint a time where he's done something selflessly (laughs) for the intention and solely the intention of assisting that person without you know thinking what comes later from him in the long run right so I don't want to get too far ahead of it or ruin anything that happens but um, anytime that he saved anyone I think it's not because he had a care for their actual life more so as if, fuck, if these things go, they're going to find what's on them, and I'm never going to get this thing back. So, you know, better the enemy that I know than the enemies that I don't, so let me go ahead and save them so I have a chance to, to get what I want later. So that's what I think. Makes sense. 
Yeah, I can I can agree with you a hundred percent on that. I don't as much as I want to give him the benefit of the doubt. He may look like Dobby, but he's not Dobby, man. <laughs> Sorry, Dobby looks like him, but Dobby has good character and helps people. <laughs> this guy is. A, he, I hate to say it, but he's a piece of shit, dude. Like, he really is. <laughs> Back to you, man. Back to you, brother. It's tough because he didn't ask for this to happen. He saw the ring, the ring ensnared him immediately, and he was lost in it from day one. So I kind of feel bad from that aspect. But, no, his actions and how his life has gone since that day, it's been very, very unfortunate. So He murdered someone for that fucking ring. Like, how can you justify that? He murdered his best friend on his best friend's birthday. Well, it was actually Smeagol's birthday. It was his birthday. that. Oh, yeah, you're right. Sorry. Stan corrected. On his birthday, it was a birthday present for him. <laughs> birthday present to take. <laughs> so bad, man. Back to you. All right. So to kind of go into uh, the last chapter here that we're going to talk about, the window on the west. Uh, Faramir, it starts off with Faramir questioning Frodo about the council, their journey from Rivendell, and his, and his meaning Frodo's role and everything. Uh, one really cool thing that we learned in this part is that Faramir is Boromir's brother. You guys remember Boromir is my favorite character in the Lord of the Rings series, so it was really cool to see his kin uh, step up and and honestly do what Boromir couldn't, and we'll get to that a little bit later on. But Sam and Frodo also learn for the first time that Boromir is dead. We've known because we've followed Legolas, Gimli, and Aragorn's side of things earlier, but this is the first time that Sam and Frodo learn that Boromir is dead. So what ends up happening is Faramir decides to take Frodo and Sam with him to a secret place that orcs nor the spies of the enemy have found yet, so that way they can rest up and let him, Faramir, decide how best to next proceed in terms of either taking Frodo back to Minas Tirith or letting them go. That's kind of the, the two choices that are presented in front of Faramir here. So Faramir, during their travel to the secret place, talks more candidly with Frodo outside of earshot of his men. and. And guesses pretty close to a lot of the truths and talks about his family's role as it pertains to the King of Gondor. And one of the things I want to mention about that, and this is here on my page uh, 312 in my book. It talks about where the line got a little bit shady for the kings of Gondor. It says, But Frodo, I press you hard about first Isildur's bane. Forgive me, it was unwise in such an hour and place. I had not had the time for thought. We had a hard fight. And there was more than enough to fill my mind. But even as I spoke with you, I drew nearer to the mark, and so deliberately shot wider. For you must know that much is still persevered of the ancient lore among the rulers of the city that is not spread abroad. We of my house are not of the line of Elendil, though the blood of Numenor is in us. For we reckon back our line to Mardiel, a good steward who ruled in the king's stead when he went away to war. And that was King Ernor, last of the line of Anarion, the childless, and he never came back. And the stewards have governed the city since that day, though as many generations of men ago. So why I wanted to bring that up is because King Ernor never went back to Gondor, and at the time was childless, and so that's where they thought like the lines of kings had ended, and the stewards have kind of taken over from there, and that's where we get Boromir and Faramir from, is the line of stewards. And, but the blood of Numenor is in them. And that's really going to be important, because we know Aragorn is descended in the line of kings from 
Alendil, which means he's descended from this king, Irnor, meaning Irnor at some point in time did have a child along the way. Don't know what the child's name is as of right now. Maybe it doesn't even talk about that in the book, and then we can find that out as an interesting fact that we'll bring up later on or something. But uh, yeah, I thought that's really important to really detail where the stewards came into play and how they came to start ruling the city of Gondor. And it actually kind of gives us an insight on Boromir's personality. Uh, it tells us, like it said, and, and, and this I remember of Boromir as a boy, when we together learned the tale of our sires and the history of our city, it always displeased him that him, that his father was not king. It says, how many hundreds of years needs it to make a steward a king if the king returns not? He asked, few years maybe in other places and of less royalty. My father answered, in Gondor, 10,000 years would not suffice. Alas, poor Boromir, does that not tell you something of him? So he's kind of always been like an impatient and brash person and wanting that glory, wanting to be you know, at, at the lead of something important. And, and he was for the most part. He was like the, the number one guy in Gondor. And he, Faramir even kind of mentions that. But this is, this is why it went bad for him, talking about Boromir and, and kind of how his end came about is his pride and his his desire for glory overcame in his mind like the, the, the power of the ring that was easily to ensnare him because all Bormir wanted to do was fight for his city gain all the glory and you know be, be almost like a king in other people's eyes you know but it was cool that he always did um, hold Aragorn in some level of respect and it mentions that here too it says uh, it does said Frodo yet he always treated Aragorn with honor and Faramir says, I doubt it not. If he were satisfied of Aragorn's claim, as you say, he would have greatly reverenced him. But the pinch had not yet come. They had not yet reached Minas Tirith or become rivals in her wars. Meaning that, like, if it came down to it, maybe he wouldn't have followed Aragorn after all. And, like, it would have been, did it come to a boiling point in the head here that, you know, who's really going to lead the charge? So I thought that was definitely important to talk about. And then from there... I wanted to read the names that Gandalf goes by in different sections of Middle-earth. It's right here on page 313 in my book. It says, The Great Pilgrim, asked Frodo, Had he a name? Mithrandir, we called him in elf fashion, said Faramir, and he was content. Many are my names in many countries, he said. Mithrandir among the elves, Tharkun to the dwarves, Olorin, I was in my youth in the west, that is forgotten. In the south, Inconus, in the north, Gandalf, to the east I go not. So he went by a couple, talk about Gandalf here, went by a few different names in different areas of Middle-earth, and I thought that was pretty cool that everyone had a different name for him. That's pretty interesting. Uh, next thing I want to talk about here, I'm going to read from the second paragraph on page 314. It says, Now Faramir's voice sank to a whisper, but this much I learned or guessed and have kept it ever secret in my heart since, that Isildur took somewhat from the hand of the unnamed before he went away from Gondor, never to be seen among mortal men again. Here, I thought, was the answer to Mithrandir's questioning. But it seemed that a matter the only concern to the seekers of ancient learning, nor when the riddling words of our dream were debated among us, did I think of Isildur's bane as being the same thing. For Isildur was ambushed and slain by orc arrows, according to the only legend that we knew, and Mithrandir never told me more. What in truth this thing is, I cannot yet guess, but some heirloom of power and peril it must be, a fell weapon, perchance, devised by the Dark Lord. If it were a thing that gave us advantage in battle, I can well believe that Boromir, the proud and fearless, often rash, ever anxious for the victory of Minas Tirith, and his own glory therein, might desire such a thing and be allured by it. Alas, 
that he ever went on that errand. I should have been chosen by my father and the elders, but he put himself forward as being the older and the hardier, both true, and he would not be stayed. But fear no more, I would not take this thing if it lay by the highway. Not where Minas Tirith falling in ruin and I alone could save her, using the weapon of the Dark Lord for her good and my glory. No, I do not wish for such triumphs, Frodo, son of Drogo. Neither did the council, said Frodo, nor do I. I would have nothing to do with such matters. For myself, said Faramir, I would see the white tree in flower again in the courts of kings and the silver crown return in Minas Tirith in peace. Minas Anor, again as of old, full of light, high, and fair, beautiful as a queen among her queens, not a mistress of many slaves, nay, not even a kind mistress of willing slaves. War must be, while we defend our lives against a destroyer who would devour it all. But I do not love the bright sword for its sharpness, nor the arrow for its swiftness, nor the warrior for his glory. I love only that which they defend, the city of the men of Numenor, and I would have loved her for her memory, ancestry, her beauty, and her present wisdom. Not feared, save as men may fear the dignity of a man old and wise. So fear me not. I do not ask you to tell me more. I do not even ask you to tell me whether how, how near I speak to the mark. But if you will trust me, it may be that I can advise you in your present quest, whatever that may be, and yes, even aid you. Frodo made no answer. Almost he yielded to the desire for help and counsel to tell this grave young man whose words seemed so wise and fair all that was in his mind. But something held him back. His heart was heavy with fear and sorrow. If he and Sam were indeed, as seemed likely, all that was left now of the nine walkers, then he was in sole command of the secret of their errand. Better mistrust undeserved than rash words, and the memory of Boromir, of the dreadful change that the lure of the ring had worked in him, was very present to his mind. And when he looked at Faramir and listened to his voice, unlike they were, and yet also so much akin. So, Right there, I thought that was super important because Faramir is basically telling him, no matter what this weapon is, no matter what you carry, I would never take it, I would never use it. So don't fear me for that reason, which is exactly the opposite of what happened with Boromir. Boromir tried to take the ring from Frodo and it ended up leading to Boromir's death. So uh, they end up having to blindfold Frodo and Sam as they approach the secret place, that's their secret place here that the spies and enemies don't know about. They don't even actually let the men of Rohan, who fight alongside them in battle, go in with open eyes either. They blindfold everybody that's not from Gondor in this, in this location. So they end up getting to their destination. And I'm going to read the second paragraph uh, on page 317 here. It says, they came, Then came the voice of Faramir close behind. Let them see. And the scarves were removed and their hoods drawn back and they blinked and gasped. They stood on a wet floor of polished stone, the doorstep, as it were, of rough-hewn gate of rock opening dark behind them. But in front of a thin veil of water was hung so near that Frodo could have put an outstretched arm into it and faced westward, the level shafts of setting sun behind upon it, and the red light was broken into many flickering beams of ever-changing color. As it was, they stood at the window of some elven tower, curtained and threaded jewels of silver, gold, and ruby, sapphire, and amethyst, all kindled with an unconsuming fire." At least by good chance we came at the right hour to reward you for your patience, said Faramir. This is the window of the sunset. Henethanun, fairest of all the falls in Ithilien, land of many fountains. Few strangers have ever seen it, but there is no kingly hall behind to match it. Enter now and see. So that was pretty cool. That was pretty descriptive, a nice little spot that they took him, especially in a country that's been overrun by the enemy. There's still this stronghold that they don't know about, and I thought it was pretty interesting and definitely worth notating. 
But then from here, Faramir talks to Frodo and Sam after dinner about a bit of the history of Gondor and how Gondor got to where they are today as a people, talking about declining. They consider themselves the high people, and they talk about Rohan and their part and how it came together, but how they wanted to live long, immortal lives. And so instead of having children, they focused more on trying to extend their long lives and not having these children. So now they're declining in terms of numbers of people outside of just what who dies in battle, but they just never repopulated because they were so consumed by this thought of the, the line of immortal men that uh, that's the big reason why they are declined so much now. And they don't even call themselves the high men anymore. Fairman says like, we're more like mid-middle men <laughs> at this point in time. So definitely thought that was pretty interesting. And this is where like the big fuck-up comes. This is the second to last thing I have uh, for the last chapter of the day. It said the first two paragraphs here on page 325. This is where Faramir and Sam are talking. And, well, and Frodo. It says, I don't know about Perilous, said Sam. It strikes me that folk take their pale with them in Lorien, and it finds there because they've brought it. But perhaps you could call her Perilous because she's so strong in herself. You could dash yourself to pieces on her like a ship on a rock or drown yourself like a hobbit in a river, but neither rock nor river would be to blame. Now, Boro, he stopped and went red in the face. Yes? Now, Boromir, you would say, said Faramir, what would you say? He took his peril with him? Yes, sir, begging your pardon, and a fine man as your brother was, if I may say so. But you've been warm on the scent all along. Now, I watched Boromir and I listened to him from Rivendell all down the road looking after my master. As you'll understand, and not meaning any harm to Boromir, and it's my opinion that in Lorien, he first saw clearly what I guessed sooner, what he really wanted. From the moment he first saw it, he wanted the enemy's ring. So Sam just fucked up and told Faramir about the ring of power. I didn't know about it up until that point in time. Now it's out in the open. So careless again. He was careless with the fire, with the smoke going up there. He's careless now. Imagine if that had been you know, anyone else except Faramir. They would have been probably killed and searched and their body taken. And like that'd be it. Sam really screwed them over here. Uh, even Frodo kind of freaks out. But... Thankfully, Faramir passes the test and keeps his word that he doesn't want to take it. So I'm going to go ahead and read, uh, so it seems, uh, from page 325 here through the end of the chapter. And it says, So it seems, said Faramir, slowly and very softly, with a strange smile. So that is the answer to all the riddles, the one ring that was thought to have perished from the world. And Boromir tried to take it by force, and you escaped, and ran all the way to me. And here, in the wild, I have you. Two halflings and a host of men at my call, and the Ring of Rings. A pretty stroke of fortune. A chance for Faramir, captain of Gondor, to show his quality. Ha! He stood up, very tall and stern, his gray eyes glinting. Frodo and Sam sprang back from their stools and set themselves side by side with their backs to the wall, fumbling for their sword hilts. There was a silence. All the men in the cave stopped talking and looked towards them in wonder. But Faramir sat down again in his chair and began to laugh quietly, and suddenly his face became grave again. Alas for Boromir. It was too sore a trial, he said. How you've increased my sorrow, you two strange wanderers from a far country, bearing the peril of men. You are less judges of men than I of halflings. We are truth speakers, we men of Gondor. We both sell them and then perform, or die in the attempt. Not if I found it on the highway would I take it, I said, even if I were such a man as to desire this thing, and even though I knew not clearly what this thing was when I spoke, still I should take those words as a vow and be held by them. But I am not such a man, or I am wise enough to know that there are some perils from which a man must flee. Sit at peace, be comforted, Samwise. 
If you seem to have stumbled, think that it was fated to be so. Your heart is shrewd as well as faithful and saw clearer than your eyes. For strange though it may seem, it was safe to declare this to me. It may even help the master that you love. It shall turn to his good if it is in my power. So be comforted, but do not even name this thing again aloud. Once is enough. The hobbits came back to their seats and sat very quiet. Men turned their back to their drink and their talk, perceiving that the captain had some jest or other with the little guest and that it was over. Well, Frodo, now at last we understand one another, said Faramir. If you took this thing on yourself, unwilling at others asking, then you have pity and honor from me, and I marvel at you, to keep it hidden not to use it. You are a new people and a new world to me. Are all your kin of the like sort? Your land must be a realm of peace and content, and there must be gardeners that are held in high honor. Not all is well there, said Frodo, but certainly gardeners are honored. But folk must grow weary there even in the gardens, as do all things under the sun of this world. And you are far from home and wayworn. No more tonight. Sleep, both of you, in peace if you can. Fear not. I do not wish to see it or touch it or know more of it than I know, which is enough. Less peril perchance waylay me, and I fall lower in the test than Frodo, son of Drogo. Go now to rest, but first tell me only if you watch and wait and think. Time passes. In the morning we must go swiftly on the ways appointed to us. Frodo felt himself trembling as a first shock of fear passed. Now a great weariness came down on him like a cloud. He could dissemble and resist no longer. I was going to find a way into Mordor, he said faintly. I was going to Gorgoroth. I must find the mountain of fire and cast the thing into the Gulf of Doom. Gandalf said so. I do not think I shall ever get there. Faramir stared at him for a moment in grave astonishment. Then suddenly he caught him as he swayed, lifting him gently, carried him to the bed and laid him there and covered him warmly. At once he fell into a deep sleep. Another bed was set beside him for his servant, and Sam hesitated for a moment, then bowing very low. Good night, Captain, my lord. You took the chance, sir. Did I so, said Faramir. Yes, sir, and showed your quality. The very highest. Faramir smiled. A pert servant, Master Samwise, but nay, the praise of the praiseworthy is above all rewards. Yet there was naught in this to praise. I had no lure or desire to do other than I have done. Ah, well, sir, said Sam. You said my master had an elvish air, and that was good and true. But I can say this. You have an air, too, that reminds me of, of well, Gandalf, of wizards. Maybe, said Faramir. Maybe you discern from far away the air of Numenor. Good night. And that is the end of the last chapter we're going to cover today, The Window on the West. What are some of the takeaways you had from this chapter? Yeah, man. No, I thought you nailed it. Um, just a couple little things here. One is uh, when they actually go into the cave, um, one, one of Faramir's men actually did mention that he saw a creature that ran away and fleed. And um, keep in mind, who's not with them right now? <laughs> so that'll come up later on, uh, foreshadowing there. Uh, and it even says that the man reported that the creature hissed at him <laughs> and then ran away. Um, another thing here, it's not that important, just when they went into the cave, I thought it was interesting, Faramir was telling them, there's only two ways out, the window of the sunset, which is the way they came, which you mentioned how they blindfolded them, because he wasn't allowing them to see the way, so they don't know that way, and then the other way out is uh, the window curtain, which is the deep bowl filled with knives of stone, is the way it's described, so... Just kind of a cool description there. You know, our buddy Tolkien, uh, he is a big fan of description. <laughs> but I thought that was cool. 
Yeah, that that was all I had, man. I, I thought you uh, nailed that chapter. That's a good point. Uh, what kind of debates did you have? Before we jump into the debates, there's one more thing that I kind of reminded myself of that we were going through. And I had mentioned it like in passing about how the men of Gondor have kind of fallen into decline. Here's this one thing right here of what they talk about. It says, uh, for so we reckon men in our lore, calling them the High, or men of the West, which were the Numenorians, and the Middle People, men of the Twilight, such as are the Rohirrim, and their kin that dwelt still far in the North, and the Wild, the men of darkness. Yet now, if the Rohirrim are grown in some ways more to like us, enhanced in arts and gentleness, we too have become more like to them, and can scarce claim any longer the title High. We are become middlemen of the Twilight, with memory of other things. For as Rohirrim do, we now love war and valor and things good in themselves, both a sport and an end. And though we still hold that a warrior should have more skills and knowledge than only the craft of weapons and slaying, we esteem a warrior nonetheless above men of other crafts. And such is the need of our days. So even was my brother Boromir a man of prowess, and for that he was accounted the best man in Gondor. And very valiant indeed he was. No heir of Minas Tirith has for long years been in so hardy of toil, so onward into battle, or blown a mightier note on the great horn. So right there, it kind of talks about like the fall of how they've come from such a high place to where they are now, and that the the mixing of between them and Rohan has kind of done good things for Rohan, and kind of almost done not great things for Gondor. Meaning that they've kind of reached a middle level together uh, as as a people. So that's the only last thing I want to mention, but. When it comes to debates, I'll let you go ahead and kick us off there, and then we'll jump into mine, and we'll close out for the day. My big debate was kind of more about Gollum and his generosity, if he had any, but we kind of covered that earlier. I guess, well, I guess I'll, I'll say this. So Gollum knew that way through the marshes, based on not giving anything away. Do you think he actually had good intentions to bring them through the marshes that it would actually help? Or you think it's just going to, it was really just an intention to aid his cause? Or he came up with that along the way, what we'll get into later on. Oh, the marshes specifically, I feel like it had been very easy for him to let them fall into the wrong spots of it and then, you know, could easily take what he wanted from it there. I think to have crossed the marshes themselves, he was trying to earn his freedom and maybe earn their trust a little bit. Eventually, I think the plan was always going to be kind of what happens later on that we're not going to you know go too, too terribly much into. But I think during like the the specifically the part that you're mentioning, just the marshes, it just makes more sense for him to kind of earn a level of trust because he could have just let them fall into it, then taken what he wanted and gone off on his merry way. Uh, but Apparently that didn't occur to him, which honestly, one of those things is like, why didn't that occur to him? <laughs> like, like, you could have just done that and you could cuddle the whole day a long time ago. But I guess <laughs> with him leading it and going first and the, the hobbits falling behind, they would, have, they would be able to see exactly what steps he took. And then if Gollum took like a wrong step to trick them, he'd end up falling in himself. So I guess you kind of have that conundrum there too, is like, would him trying to lure the hobbits into a bad spot on the marshes actually end up luring himself into it as well since he would have to figure out where he needed to step to get to a good spot while also leading the hobbits into a bad spot or else they're kind of both screwed so i guess that could have played into it as well but i think getting them across the marshes was the plan i think he wanted to do that and get them safely across there 
Uh, I think a lot of it was to try to earn his freedom, too. I don't think he knew what the plan was of Frodo going directly to the Black Gate. And he said he wanted to take him to the Black Gate, but he never said he wanted to do afterwards, which is take the ring into Mordor that way. And so I think he wanted to earn his freedom, too. And that could have been a, a way to do that. So, Which is, again, it's almost like his mind is very much marred. And I think that kind of leads to our like, evidence to our earlier points that we're making about it doesn't function as a regular human with reason because... If you think about it, people who have domesticated dogs that we were talking about, you give a dog a command and it, it like will follow it because it's loyal to you for honestly no other reason other than that you feed it and that you love it and give it a place of shelter. So I guess maybe Smeagol kind of has a little bit of that in him where like he has some level of loyalty here because they could have killed him and they decided not to. And so instead of thinking strategically at this point in time, he's just, he might be out of gratitude that, hey, you guys spared my life here, so I'm going to help you get across. But yeah, I guess that's, that's the best I can come up with on that topic. I don't know. What, what are your thoughts on it? Uh, I, I tend to agree with you. I think it was more of, I don't think he was genuinely doing it to help people. I think he was doing it more for his freedom. So it was more of like an on the fly decision kind of thing. Um, just like how he was saying, Oh, nice hobbits. You know, he was trying to be more loyal at that point. So I think more of the Smeagol side took over. Um, but it just makes me question like how, I think you're right. Like, I, I wonder, like, kind of based on the foreshadowing we've kind of seen through Sam trusting him and not trusting him, I think in a way it's almost like the Gollum side had a plan, but maybe those two don't exactly converse at the exact time. I think that's the catch there. So I think... <laughs> It's all. It reminds me of the departed. You're like two different people. You fucking snake, you. <laughs> That's exactly what it reminds me of. But I think the Smeagol side. I don't exactly say genuine, but I think it was to help his own cause. But I don't think it was to necessarily, you know, hurt anybody. However, I think the Gollum side had a different plan, which is why he didn't surface himself more often so that's my thoughts what about you man i guess my debate comes from what do we think would have happened uh, i guess I, I have two debates today because both of them are going to be like a what if scenario my first what if scenario is what would have happened if frodo decided that the only way to go into mordor we're not going to follow smeagol's other secret passage like we're at the black gates and this is the way we're going like do we think he would have been caught before he even approached the gate? Do we think he could have somehow found a way to sneak in, even with all the security around it? And then once he was in, like, how does he navigate to get to Mount Doom? Do we think there's just no possible way at all and that he would have been taken captive right away? How do, how do we see that going if Frodo made the decision, no, we're, we're going to the Black Gate? Me, personally, I just don't have any idea what he was thinking <laughs> like you're just gonna walk up to the gates knock on the door let the mouth of sauron come out and you're just two hobbits good luck man <laughs> that's 
you know, I know they say it's two on one, but you're looking at two on about a million and some wraiths on the side. <laughs> good luck. Good luck. He, he had to have Aragorn fight off the few Nazgul with that ring wraiths that were around him over on the mountaintop. I mean, good luck with that. I just have no idea what he thought his plan was, whether he thought he'd even try to sneak around get to the top of the mountain and sacrifice himself or i don't have any idea what he thought his plan was i don't think he had a plan i think he was making it up as he went along and that's the difference between him and gandalf because gandalf doesn't just make up plans as he goes along but that's why they're also in this situation because he decided to go make up his own plan with samwise gamgee leaving everyone that think things properly through behind and they just thought they were going to waltz up to the front gates and they were going to roll out the red carpet all the way up the mountain <laughs> that's not what happened thank the lord they found the treasonous snake <laughs> that's gonna lead them through the marshes because honestly if it wasn't for that this could have been over already so i just don't see any situation Let's put it this way. If Gandalf, Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli are struggling already, <laughs> and they're not at the Black Gates, what makes you think Sam and Frodo are getting up into that mountain? And I'll leave it at that. <laughs> what do you think? Uh, I don't, yeah, it would be tough to see any way that that would come out in a favorable situation for Frodo and Sam. It said that there were sentinels on the battlements. There was the hills were overrun with orcs inside those caves. So likely they don't even make it to the Black Gate. Like they're, they're <laughs> because they have that path, the Sirith Gorger, the 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 Haunted Pass is what they call it. So they they probably get spotted on the Haunted Pass and just get a host of different enemies out there to meet them before they even get to the gate and just get dragged in and taken captive there. My only thought is. They somehow find a way to sneak to the gate without being seen on the haunted pass, and then they sit there and wait in their elvish camouflage cloaks uh, for the gate to open, and then try to sneak in. And then maybe at this point, this again, this is just really far fetched. I don't believe this is very plausible or at all possible, really. <laughs> but I'm thinking maybe, maybe at this point, they get inside the gate, and Frodo puts the ring on and just does a dead sprint and tries to. Tries to outrun it since he's that close, and they can't really see him if he's invisible. The enemies can't. At least, they, you know, the, the ring race and Sauron can. So maybe at that point it'd be like a race between who gets to Mount Doom first, Frodo with the, the ring on his finger, or the <laughs> ring race do they catch up to him first? Uh, that'd be the only way I could see in his mind of like how that would have worked, because that's that's really it. Like if you can't see him, cool. And then, like that's at least as a plausible way for him to get around all these enemies. But outside of putting the ring on, where is he going to do? Where is he going to go? Like the places, there's armies coming in and out. The place is fully staffed of all different types of uh, men and and evil creatures. They've got armies coming in to join them by the day. Where is he going to go? <laughs> so I guess that's the only thing I could think is if they were able to somehow sneak up to the gate itself, wait for it to open, then Frodo puts the ring on and just makes a sprint for it. And I don't know how far away Mount Doom is from the gate, 
but I don't know if he's got enough, enough gas in his legs to get him there before he gets caught somehow. But that's the only way I could see it happening, or like at least the only idea in Frodo's mind that could happen. I definitely don't think it would have worked out, but I'm just saying that that's the only possible explanation I could have for why that was the main goal for Frodo is to get to the Black Gate. So I don't know. What do you, what do you think about that? I mean, I guess they plan to toss their self in. <laughs> That's the only thing I can think of. I mean, even if you happen to make it there, you're not certainly not getting out. Yeah. Like in the words of Tony Stark, this is a one-way ticket. <laughs> like This is a one-way ticket for you. And even to that point, how selfish of them to just think it was going to work out that way. Like, what? It, even worse... What if they got inside the gate, got killed, and then Sauron just takes the ring? Like, then all this is for nothing. Like, everyone's fucked. Everyone's royally effed. <laughs> like, how selfish are you? Even better, if I was Smeagol, I would have let them walk up to the front of the gate. I would have pranced around. Smeagol's already brought up the point, point that he did escape on his own, so he knows how to get out of there. So I would have let them be killed. I would have, you know, managed to weasel my way on in there, grab the ring, and then weasel my own way back out. And then Smeagol's back in power again for the rest of his life. When I say back in power, I mean in a cave rotting away, but at least he's happy. You know, that's what some people say is, if you're happy, you don't work another day in your life. <laughs> so, I mean, I guess that's that's what I would have done, man. But I just don't even know what the plan was. I know what Gandalf, Aragorn, Legolas, Gimli, Boromir's plan was. I know what the Fellowship's plan was. Even Elrond's plan was. Except for these two. It's like you almost wonder in your mind, which you know this isn't true. Because Frodo's brought up the point. That I'm taking the ring to Mordor. Like, we get it. You said you're taking the ring to Mordor. Like, Jon Snow said, you are my queen. We get it. You like Daenerys Targaryen. All right, you're taking the ring to Mordor. What are you doing? <laughs> like that's One could almost argue your whole plan was to say you're taking it to Mordor, but you're really getting on a boat to say, fuck this, man. I'm going to the Bahamas. I'm fucking done. <laughs> Shit sucks. Taking that ring for my own. I'm going to become the next Smeagol. I'm going to the Bahamas. Sam, you've already bothered me enough with your whole potato and cooking run that you make every fucking morning. I want to have some brew and beer. And I'm getting the fuck out of here. <laughs> That's what I thought. You know, one could almost argue that, man. Because I don't see any plan where this works out well for these two without Smeagol. I mean, I don't think it, there was a solid plan even with all the rest of the people you mentioned there either. They never gave him an idea of how to get into Mordor. They never told him what to do. Like, you know, you say <laughs> you said Gandalf doesn't make shit up on the fly. Well, he absolutely did. He decided to sacrifice himself for the rest of the Fellowship. And that was definitely made up on the fly because there's no way Gandalf planned on not letting them have like a leader to figure out the rest of the way of the journey. So like... Uh, I don't really think it's necessarily Sam and Frodo's fault. It's just like they, no one really knew how to get into Mordor, and they were probably all thinking we're going to cross this bridge when we get there. I don't think anyone had a good plan for it. No one had mentioned any passageway. No one had mentioned anything. It's just like, we'll help you get there. Cool, what happens when we get there? I don't know, we'll figure it out. <laughs> like, there was no plan from Elrond. There was no plan from Gandalf. There was no plan from Aragorn. No one. 
Nobody said this is what we're going to do. Aragorn didn't even know which way to go like after Gandalf passed away. He's like, shit, I guess this is the best way I can figure it out. Like, it's just, I don't know. Uh, but I just definitely don't think that the Black Gate was the way to go. I was just simply saying, like, I wonder what would have happened if there was no other passage and they had to make a run. Like, what would the thought process be? Like, how they could have completed the mission? And, yeah, of course, I think that if that was the case, what I had mentioned, if him putting the ring on, he had no chance of coming back out. And I don't think he thinks he's going to make it back out anyways. I don't think he ever thought that he was going to make it back. I think in his mind, Frodo's mind, he was going to die on this journey. So... I think that would have been fine for him, I guess I can say. Um, <laughs> how depressing, man. I know. Like, how depressing. Then, but. Yeah. The, the second the second debate that I had, too, is just, like, the, the same sort of deal is, you know, what would have happened if Faramir decided, shit, we can use this ring to defend Gondor and took it back? Like, you know, what would have happened there? Would, would Gandalf have gotten to Minas Tirith in time and, like, figured that out and stopped it? Or, like would we get this whole issue since because you know Gandalf and Pippin are on their way to Minas Tirith as we speak right so I don't know who gets there first does he get a like intuition that that happens and tries to stop it and get the ring back to Frodo or or did they get there in time first and try to use the ring against Sauron and then the whole world screwed like what do you think there well I think you got another Boromir situation but not as bad because I mean at least Faramir has you know, a whole army basically surrounding him. I don't want to say an army. Like his little bandits <laughs> are there helping him out. Um, I mean, I think you'll have the, you would have the situation where Frodo would try to escape with the ring because that's his instinct to do so as he wears it. But I mean. It depends if he has the power to harness it, really. I mean, Faramir... Technically, Faramir is now that Boromir is gone. Is Faramir anywhere... Well... Because, I, I mean, Aragorn's the rightful true king. Is he really in line for the throne at all at any point? I mean, he's definitely, like, the next steward of, of Gondor, which, you know, they've been ruling Gondor in the place of the king since the king hasn't returned to Gondor. So he, he has a line of Numenor in him, meaning he would definitely be in the next position to rule the city. But, I mean, I don't think I think that's all, like, that doesn't matter to, like, the point of the question. Like, the point is, like, do, do we, the, does, I guess the, the one part there you bring up is if Frodo puts the ring on, but then at that point... We all know where the ring is because the eye can follow the ring, and then all the bad guys go to right where he is and trying to escape from Faramir there. But like I'm saying, like, let's say Faramir takes it, and my biggest question is like, what happens? Does do they get to do they use it first in battle and try to use it against Sauron and, and the enemy of Mordor, or does Gandalf get there in time to stop it? Like, how do we see that kind of playing out if Faramir were to take the ring? Like, where does it go from there? Well, that's kind of what I was trying to get at by asking that. It was the fact of if Faramir is able to harness the power of the ring. Well, I think like, anyone can like harness the power because even Frodo <laughs> said that he was going to take Smeagol, tell Smeagol what to do with it when he puts it on and commanded him. So I think like any, I think anyone that has the power to, to quote unquote harness it, it's just I don't know. How, well, I mean, how however you want to use it, because you could argue that technically, you know, his army would respect him for it, and then you could have this whole situation where then there's a war over there. So, 
I mean, but I just don't think that's in his cards where he would play that. I mean, I just, I mean, we could do, I don't know. I mean, you could, I mean, I would think they would just get away again. And then you'd have a big situation where, honestly, honestly, here's what would probably happen. I think you'd have a gigantic, well, no, because then you have the marshes. Uh, I mean, basically, honestly, what you could think of at this point is if Faramir takes the ring and is able to kill Sam and Frodo, you could have a really big threat to Middle-earth on your hands because there's no one that can really get to them at the moment based on where they're at since they just crossed the marshes. The only one that's really could get to them, <laughs> they don't know where Smeagol is, but he's really the only one because of where they're located at this moment. Keep, so keep let's in mind, say he killed Frodo and Sam. I mean, yeah, I, I would say keep in mind that like this, this the marshes are far behind now. This is like where they went from the Black Gate. They circumvented and went started going towards the secret passages that Gollum was talking about. They were crossing the Ithilien, which is that other countryside. So that's nowhere like near the marshes. That that's a completely different spot. So. The marshes, oh, okay, the, yeah. the marshes yeah, are... Yeah, so they wouldn't have to cross that. No. So, well, <laughs> then if you have that situation, then since they're so close, well, it depends on how close they are to the Black Gate, but I think it would act as almost like... I feel like uh, Faramir would wind up putting the ring on, and then Sauron would get notice of that, and then you would have that entire army come over there, which then Faramir is fucked. So that means that Sauron's going to get the ring. There's no one can get to the ring in time from where everyone else is because they're basically on their own in La La Land because they chose to venture off for <laughs> for who knows how many miles and kilometers they decided to go to the Land of Oz. So, I mean, you're basically fucked. Like, that's all you could do. Like... He's getting the ring at that point. That's just the way it is. What about you? I would say that, you know, keep in mind that they were on a mission and an errand uh, from Gondor to ambush the army coming up to join at the Black Gate. So Gondor isn't too far away. I think what would end up happening if Faramir took the ring is he would bring it back to his father. And, like, you know, because Faramir always kind of tried to prove himself to his father a little bit. At least that's how the, the films made it seem. The books make him seem a little bit different and a little bit more sure of himself and more confident in himself. Uh, I guess we'll have to kind of see where his character goes from here. But, um, you know, I think that's what would end up happening is that he would take the ring back to the city of Gondor and let his father and maybe the other wise people decide what to do with it and how they would utilize it. I don't think he just takes the ring and is like, oh, I've got the ring now, I'm going to use it. I think, you know, it, it takes a little bit for the ring to take hold of anyone. You saw it took, it took it for a while for Boromir to get underneath the trap where he tried to take the ring. Um, so I, I think he would probably bring it back to Gondor. And I think what would end up happening is, uh, depending on who won the race between Faramir and his little army and Gandalf and Pippin on Shadowfax, I really think that Gandalf could have got there in time and kind of understood the situation because he seems to know a lot more now that he is like resurrected and is now Gandalf the White of better about people's hearts and their intentions and I think maybe he could have gotten there in time to stop Faramir from presenting the ring to Denethor 
which is like the steward of Gondor right now, and maybe get it back to Frodo. That that's my ideal hope. If that didn't happen, and he got the ring to Denethor, they would probably try to use it in battle against Sauron, and then we know how that would end, and the ring would just go back to Sauron, and then leave Middle Earth in darkness. But I would have a little bit of slimmer of hope that Gandalf could win the race there and um, get in, and convince people to do the right thing after all. I think that that's definitely a possibility. So. I guess that that would be like my thought is if he took the ring, how there would be a situation they could overcome that. I don't know. Here's a question right before you close out. Say Sauron gets the ring. Who wields the ring? Because Sauron is basically like a spirit almost. Like he has his all-seeing eye. Like who's going to actually wear the ring or how do you think it's used if Sauron gets the ring? I think it, it, it kind of acts almost, you know, in a way that we kind of mentioned this last week, like like a horcrux in the fact that I don't think he would need a spell to come back into a corporeal form. I think I mentioned this in Fellowship of the Ring that the ring's all he needs to take physical form again. So once he has the ring, it can kind of like draw his power out from that he put into the ring into himself again and, and take physical form and then put the ring on himself. I think that's how it would, I think that's how it would be. Do you think there's any chance at winning at that point no do you think there's there's no a sealed door comes like uh, a sealed door kind of person comes and saves the day at that point like or do you think it's just game over i think it's just game over right because it's that old saying like fool me once shame on you fool me twice shame on me i don't think Sauron would kind of fall into the same trap twice like <laughs> i don't think that they would get that chance because he was very confident in the first you know war the first great war and that took him by surprise. I think that would stay with him because it took him this long to regain power. He's not going to let something like that happen again. So I would assume that he would either himself stay back from battle and let the armies just do their work because they outnumber the good guys' armies, or if he does get into battle, he definitely is a little bit smarter about how he engages with the other forces. So. That's what I think. I think the answer question flat out. I think it's game over. I think if he gets the ring, if it's on, he takes physical form. It's game over. Yeah. Uh, last quick question here. So, how is Sauron being in his form he's in now? How is it that you have something like a Nazgul that's not exactly alive, really, and it's still able to ride these? dragon type creatures and be in a physical form whereas Sauron has to stay in this kind of all-seeing eye almost like almost like in a spiritual realm kind of way whereas like the Nazgul aren't exactly alive either but they're still able to be in a physical body yeah I think it has to do with the rings of power that they have on them, like the nine, because like they were the nine kings, and they have like the rings of power on them, uh, and they're just ensnared by Sauron's will. So, uh, who knows? You know, if I, I also think that this too is that they never really, never really perished. They just kind of phys- phased out of full pure physical form and kind of touched the balance and like the rope of like spiritual realm and physical realm. Because they can, you know, as we saw that when Spro put the ring on, and he could see the full outline of the kings of old that were now the ring race, and you know how they had they had those nine rings of power on them. So I think it has a lot to do with the rings of power that they have that gives them physical form. 
kind of like how if Sauron got his ring back, it would give him physical form. But on top of that, too, like they never kind of met an end the way that Sauron did either to where, you know, they, that ring was cut off and he didn't have it anymore. Like that hasn't happened to these ring wraiths. And I don't know if it can happen now because like, like it doesn't seem, well, I guess we'll get to that later on when this is, this is going to be much later when <laughs> we see certain people <laughs> battle ring wraiths. But, um, yeah, I think, I think it has a lot to do with, with the rings of power. That's my, that's my thought on it. Yeah, no. Uh, yeah, I would I would say the same thing. But yeah, man, good stuff. Do you want to close us out for the day? Yeah, let's do it. Sounds like a plan. So, you know, guys, thanks for joining us again. You know, we're here on part three. You know, next week is going to be part four of the two towers. And then like Chase said in the beginning of this episode, right after that, we'll have the differences part one and differences part two of the two towers. And then we're in the very last installment of this franchise. So it's gone a lot quicker than we thought it has. And you know, it's been a pleasure to, to bring it to you all the way up until this point. And so we're excited to go into next week as well and close out the, the novel of The Two Towers. You know, so um, this is your first time joining us today. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. We hope you stick around. If this has been, the, you know, you've been with us since day one, you know, you guys are the shields that guard the realms of fantasy. And we're, we're very grateful for you sticking with us all this time. So uh, for those who haven't joined before, if you want to find us, we are on social media. We're on Instagram at official ridiculous Patronus. We are on TikTok at Ridiculous Patronus. We're on Twitter at RP Factor Fantasy. We're on Snapchat RP Factor Fantasy. We're on Facebook at Chase and Josh Factor Fantasy. And we have our own site, ridiculouspatronus.blogspot.com, where Chase does upload films and clips from the movies to kind of coincide with what we tackle in the uh, current episode that is out. So uh, that's where you can find us on social. If you want to figure out where to find us through the podcast itself, if you're an Apple user, you can find us on iTunes. You can find us on Apple Podcasts. If you're an Android user, you can find us on Google Play. You can find us on Spotify. We're on iHeartRadio. We're on Podbean. We're on Amazon Music. We are on, We have a YouTube channel as well. We are on Acast, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Chase and Josh Factor Fantasy are there, and we would love it if you guys leave us reviews, subscribe, and like if you enjoy what you hear from us. So that way we continue to bring you all the great things that we have today. But we are out for the day because, you know, this has been another ridiculous production. Chase and Josh. Factor Fantasy. Signing off. off.